The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I am delighted to welcome my guest, Ms. Christina Ward. She is a food historian, author, and vice president and editor of Feral House, a publisher noted for their books on outre topics, meaning topics that are unusual and startling. Ms. Ward is a contributor to a variety of publications, including Serious Eats, Edible Milwaukee, The Wall Street Journal, and The Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. She is the author of several books, including American Advertising Cookbooks, How Corporations Taught Us to Love Spam, Bananas, and Jello, and Preservation, The Art and Science of Canning, Fermentation, and Dehydration. However, her most current book and the topic of our conversation today is titled, Holy Food, How Cults, Communes, and Religious Movements Influenced What We Eat in American History. Ms. Ward regularly contributes to academic and educational conferences on the topic of transgressive art, and she is a certified master food preserver for Southeast Wisconsin. Ms. Ward says her love of history comes from her father, who instilled the idea that we are all manifestations of our ancestors. She prides herself on having a hungry mind, interested in learning about people, the foods they eat, and the stories that arise from that convergence. She tells the stories of who we are and who we want to be through our shared food history. Welcome, Christina. Thank you so much for having me. Well, this is a remarkable book. It's really different and unique and certainly fits with your publisher's mission to have the unusual and startling brought to readers. Before we start, I want to comment on something you said in an interview in a previous podcast. You said cookbook collectors are a subspecies of bibliomaniacs, but cookbooks are history, an untapped resource of women's history in particular. Can you dive into that statement for a moment? Oh, absolutely. As everybody could probably guess, I am a cookbook collector. And in reading through cookbooks, whether they're modern cookbooks or even cookbooks back from the 16, 1700s, you'll notice that it is the Chatelaine. It is the woman of the manor. It is the household manager who is making note of the recipes and more than recipes, the operations of the household. And within that becomes that history of remedies that worked, of illnesses that were endemic to a specific area where that house was, where those people were living. And when you put those together, it tells that larger story of what women's lives were like during any specific era and in different geographic locations. Mm -hmm. And I think we undervalue the power of cookbooks in what they really tell us if we read between the lines. I agree. I think it's funny too, is that one of the modern tropes for recipes online and kind of online cookbooks is that folks complain about the extensive headnotes, that they just want the recipe and the ingredients. Whereas I love the headnotes because again, that's where the history is. That's where the story is. 
Yeah. And that is the beauty of a book rather than downloading recipes online. So for those who say, what do you need all those cookbooks for? You can get your recipes online. That is why we still hoard cookbooks. Yes. (laughs) All right. Now I have to ask, what led you to explore the idea of religion and cults and communes and how they influenced what and how we eat? A lot of my interest, my obsession with this comes from a childhood. Uh, I grew up in kind of what's called jokingly a mixed household, meaning my father was nothing, kind of a Protestant agnostic, whereas my mother was Roman Catholic. And inherent in that is going to school at Catholic school for a number of years. But at the same time, having different experiences at home, my father telling me different stories. Being in a public school is a wonderful experience for any kid. And you're exposed to so many more different ideas of spirituality, ways to practice religion and food. Everybody's school lunch is always a little different and often reflects their heritage, where their families come from. And so I think it's that combination of public schools, having a little bit of religious divergence in the house, and just being one of those kids who always asked why is uh, the motivator behind the entire work. Well, it's truly a unique work of art and clearly dedication. You have written that it took you five years to put this book together. Yes, five years of really active work. As you might suspect, I've been thinking about these ideas for a long time. But the reading, the research and interviews, as well as, you know, working class writers is we're still working a full time job. Writing a book is always about that passion. And I encourage people if they're interested in a topic, they should definitely pursue it. Don't give up. If you're interested, learn as much as you can. Mm-hmm. Well, this is truly a treasure trove of American history. And I was drawn to the first page where you have a very short quote. And it really struck me now, especially as we're witnessing so much war around the world where people are not having enough to eat, being denied basic necessities. But your first page says, whoever needs come and eat. And that is from the Babylonian Talmud. What made you choose that particular quote? I think aside from just the beautiful sentiment that no one should go hungry, that we should all eat and together. And when you think about that more, the idea of togetherness, eating, sharing a meal is an act of trust. We are trusting that we're not going to be poisoned. We're trusting that uh, the folks we're sharing that meal with are going to give us delicious and nutritious food. And if we think about the history, the Babylonian Talmud was written at a time of the Diaspora, when the Jewish community, from a historical sense, thousands of years ago, were separated and sent off in many directions. And while held captive in Babylon, had still written out their rules and their beliefs, and were still this idea that everyone should eat and everyone should still be welcome, even in the most adverse conditions. Of course, that was written prior to this current conflict happening in the Levant. But that sentiment, I think, is universal and never goes out of style. Right. I almost feel like it needs to be broadcast far and wide just as a friendly reminder It's a beautiful and powerful sentiment. I want to know about the common denominators, if there are any from your perspective, that you found 
among all of these different religious faiths and cults, etc.? There are a couple through lines. And again, based on my research and my reading, someone else may have a different takeaway. But mine was how interconnected all of these ideas and spiritual beliefs are and how they're built on each other and how they're related to each other. And then the secondary one is how this food culture develops in the United States, where just like the food metaphors that we use to describe ourselves, it describes our food. We are a melting pot. We truly are a blended society. And so is our food. Our food is a fusion of the things that we historically and culturally bring to the table and then how we meet it to where we are as a kind of an occupational hazard. You know, you, you meet so many people who can be fairly inculcated with just their own ideas and become less receptive to ideas from another culture. And that is uh, to the detriment of both the culture and to the cuisine. Mm -hmm. You know, I want to believe in my heart that we can find peace around the table and through sharing of food. That's what I like to hope anyway. I believe that as well. For as much as we have Taco Tuesday, let's have Shawarma Saturday. I think we become Americans through our stomachs. And the more that we share our cuisines and we mess them up. I love seeing food trucks that have Korean tacos. I'm seeing more Indian restaurants, like Indian-owned restaurants here in my area in the upper Midwest, are featuring a lot of Mexican variations. I'm seeing Indian pizza, a curry pizza. To me, that's fantastic and wholly American. Exactly. That fusion is terrific. Well, let me ask you right off the bat, because we will not have time to dive into all of the faiths and communes and cults that you've presented us. We're going to have to just leave this as a teaser for our listeners. <laughs> but did you have any revelations yourself when you were writing this book? I think my biggest revelation was the the commonality. There really isn't too much different in the nature of our core beliefs. I say very clearly that I am atheist. I am without God, not an, a rabid anti-God. There's a difference because my observation in studying all these religious practices, both mainstream and some of the newer religious movements, is that commonality. People are seeking, they're seeking comfort, they're seeking community, and they're seeking a recipe, if you will, for how to live, how to be a good person and how to interact with their communities. And that's the universal. And that's one of my takeaways. Yeah. I also found your book fascinating because you uncovered some very odd customs. For example, there is a Welsh custom or there was a Welsh custom at funerals to pass food across the body of the deceased. Yes. It's a form of you know, kind of a sin eater out of that Protestant tradition that if someone dies without either a kind of a confession or, you know, being reborn in some way, I'm using some more modern terminology, that they won't go to heaven. And what a horrible outcome for someone who is in a community of belief. And so that practice of sin eating and then passing food over a recently deceased body was a ritual, was representational of consuming the sin, from actually consuming the sin of the person to clean them, to clear them, to take on the burden of the sin for the living so that the dead can go freely to heaven. I think it's a beautiful idea and in practice can be 
a little creepy. Yeah, right. Well, at least for the way we think in modern day society, but it's fascinating to learn about past rituals and why they occurred. The other, since we're on the topic of sin eating, I thought it was interesting that in some faiths, there were wealthy sinners who would pass their fasting penance on to the poor. Yes, that idea that you can outsource your penance is incredibly interesting and also speaks to a bit about human nature is I find it, again, I find a lot of similarities between human behavior and and how we behave about food. Just as everyone reads a recipe and then thinks about what they're going to do differently and change it or take a shortcut, we tend to do that with our beliefs and our spiritual practices in many ways. And so that's a good example of someone finding kind of the loophole in the belief to be able to pay someone to take on your penance. Right. Well, I was fascinated too by your chapter on utopia or utopian communal living, a place where no one would go hungry. And I was especially interested in Fourier. Am I pronouncing the name correctly? That's my understanding of the pronunciation. Yes. Well, his utopian society was going to be in Harmony, Indiana. But what I loved about this particular individual was that he really emphasized embracing food as a sensual joy. And you reflect that sentiment onto some of the ways we think today, like the new food movements, like the locavore movement or slow food has similar reverence for food. I thought it was fascinating and also prescient in a way, like you're saying, the slow food movement, some of the organic movement, the resurgence of farmer markets, but also in some of the new religious movements in the 20th century in the United States have that same idea where especially groups that have denial, whether they're restricting alcohol, they're restricting sugar consumption, or they're restricting even meats, they tend to then find a different type of food to replace that sensual pleasure, just like Fourier did. And because it's an acknowledgement that food does bring us absolute pleasure when we eat it. Right. Second only to sex. And I was glad to see that mentioned. Thank you. Yeah, I thought that was important because we have a biological drive to eat. We really do. And especially all the recent studies that have been done on both brain chemistry and metabolic science and the relationship to the gut biome, to all of that, we are creatures that are just compelled to consume. And one of that elements that helps keep us alive and eating is that we, again, get some pleasure from it. Exactly. Let me take one break because we're halfway through. I want to remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. And today we are joined by Ms. Christina Ward. She is a food historian and author of Holy Food, How Cults, Communes, and Religious Movements Influenced What We Eat in American History. Okay, I want to dive into some of the commonalities that I saw among all of the faiths and religions and cults and communes that you brought forth in this book. And that is this feasting and fasting. And it varies, of course, with some faiths being well in the extreme range. But there seems to be a constant with feasting and fasting rituals. Absolutely. It becomes a way to show both reverence 
and joy and thankfulness. If we think about feasting, we think about Thanksgiving, we think about a lot of holidays that are celebrated with an abundance of food. It is, again, a way that we honor our traditions and our belief. And of course, the polar opposite is the fasting. When we feel that we have sinned or we have offended God or the world needs a corrective, we fast. We offer up that suffering we, as a penance, if you will, or as a, an atonement by saying, God, we are sorry for whatever we did to offend you. Please give us our food back. And so we will willingly give it up. So you give it back to us. And it's a wonderful idea. Of course, every group does it a little differently. And of course, it can be used in a malicious controlling sense as well. But that is the essence. And it's a commonality that every religious culture has and shares from time immemorial. Yeah. And it was fascinating to read about how thinness and deprivation becomes holy, whereas someone who appears to eat much or have gluttony, that then is in the sinful mindset. And it's important, at least for me as a dietitian, I think it's really important to move away from thinking like that. But I appreciated understanding the roots of that thinking. Thank you. I think it's important too, because I see it so often is that we're so quick to judge. And I think we're all guilty of it. I've done it. I've been in the grocery store and you kind of glance at someone's grocery cart and think, oh, geez, they shouldn't be eating all those little Debbies. But again, we have free will. And that is always the tension within our religious, spiritual culture and our food culture. We have free will, but at the same time, we have rules that we can choose to follow or not follow or have imposed on us in certain ways. But then there's also the modern aspect of it, of having advertising and having food corporations that are actively trying to influence what we're eating as well. Of course, that was some of my previous work. And I thought that was really interesting in how some of the new religious movements also co-opted some of that modern advertising culture to get their food out there and get their food culture in front of people. Absolutely. In fact, I did want to talk about Jim Jones mm -hmm. and his using cakes as a way to bring people into the fold. Yeah. And the idea is, is totally disarming. If we think about just your neighbor coming over and bringing you muffins or a cake, it is a totally disarming maneuver. And it's welcoming. As we started talking about that gift of food, sharing food, it's an act of trust. And so early on, Jim Jones, who, again, was the inheritor, really, who was following in the footsteps of Father Divine's Peace Mission, which was founded in the 1910s in New York City, was also very food-based. The idea of feeding people was a way to bring people together and can be used for good outcomes and can be used, as Jones did, to somewhat nefarious purposes. He was trying to convince people to do work for him for free and thought by giving them cakes and inviting them to his early church services would help convince them to do things at no cost. Right. Cake diplomacy, as you say. Yes. The other fascinating component that rose to my attention was how many products or practices that we do today have basis in religious origins. So you mentioned Little Debbie Cakes. Who knew that they would have an Adventist Day affiliate owner? Yeah, absolutely. The Adventists were really entrepreneurial. 
And they were recommending a fairly different and restrictive diet when we think about the times in the late 1800s. So they were publishing cookbooks. And then as food industrialization began in the 20th century, they were one of the first groups to really take advantage of this idea of we can make our own food products. It will make it easier for our followers to adhere to our prescribed diet, but it would also generate revenue for the group and it would act as an attractant for new believers. If someone's eating Little Debbie's, Kellogg's, Morningstar, kind of fake meats, Worthington brand fake meats, those are all brands that were either founded by or associated with the Seventh-day Adventists. So when we buy those products today, is there still that ownership present? Is that funding that denomination? In the Worthington brand is still owned by the Seventh Day Adventist Church. The Little Debbie's brand, as well as then the Morning Star, those were sold off years ago. They also just encouraged many of their followers to develop food brands and food products and to start those businesses on their own using Adventist principles. The other thing that was an aha for me had to do with how we got the McDonald's fish fillet. Yes. I'm, as as we said, I'm a Midwesterner on the Great Lakes. And all of the Great Lakes, the major cities, have a large Catholic population from early 20th century migration. And in the Catholic tradition, you, during Lent, you don't eat meat on Fridays. And a very entrepreneurial McDonald's franchise owner in Buffalo, New York, realized there was an opportunity there, that people weren't going to buy hamburgers on Fridays, and especially Fridays during Lent. And so came up with the idea of a fish sandwich in the form similar to a burger. It's on a bun and served it. And it became a huge hit. They tried it out locally and it, of course, went nationwide and is not just reserved for the special Lenten season, but is served year round. Yeah. And then also the Yogi tea. Tell us about that. Yogi Bhajan was an Indian immigrant who came to Los Angeles in the early 60s. And he was coming on the heels of other Indian-style gurus who were bringing an Indian-style spirituality and yoga. Yogi Bhajan really focused on the yoga because what Yogi Bhajan really truly believed in was capitalism and money. And Yogi Bhajan is that example of using and combining a spiritual practice using the U.S. tax laws and how nonprofits and how religious nonprofits are set up to build a billion-dollar food company. And that's through Yogi Tea. He was also responsible for kettle potato chips, which taste really good, but again, was is owned by the 3HO, the Happy Holy Healthy Organization. Wow. This is just fascinating to get to the roots of some of the products we see on the supermarket shelves and just take for granted. Um, thank you. And that is really the impetus as I started. I'm always the kid who asked why. And there's always a reason. There's always a motivating factor. And it's my joy and delight to try to research that, to find out the big why. Why are we doing anything that we're doing? Why are we eating what we're eating? And that to me is one of the most fascinating aspects of just being human. Yeah. Well, what I love about your book, in addition to the fact that it's got the history base, 
is that you also bring forth 75 recipes from religious and communal groups, and you've tested them and updated them for modern cooks. You've got the picture of the cookbook from where you sourced the recipe. How did you choose among all of the recipes in those cookbooks? It was a bit of a distillation process. I still have my collection of cookbooks that still have little post-it markers. I haven't taken those out yet for potential recipes. So it became like first pass reading. What are things that looked good? What looked good to maybe modern eaters? And then culling out ones that could be repetitive from groups. And what are good examples of a recipe that really represents that group? And then, of course, did it taste good? Could home cooks replicate that? And would it taste good? Because, again, I was not really interested in including really just terrible recipes just for laughs. That, to me, didn't serve the purpose. I wanted people to be able to cook some of these recipes and enjoy them. And I think it leads to a deeper understanding of what that group believed and how they practiced and more of the nuance of even groups with bad outcomes, groups with really suspect theologies could still produce delicious food. I couldn't agree more. I really appreciate the recipes that you chose because I do feel that it is a way to have an intimate exposure to the belief systems. After reading you know, a little bit about the history, I have to ask you, you took five years to write this book, but I am sure that you had to say to yourself, okay, stop, right? Being an investigator myself, I know what it's like to have somebody say, you got to stop now. What did you leave out from this book? What do you wish you could include? Or if you were to do a volume two, where would you go with it? What was left out was a lot. And I experienced exactly what you're describing. I had a good friend who was acting as my editor and I got the great kind of feedback from her of what the heck are you doing? Because I was trying to get everything in. I pulled it back to get good representation of the thought lines of the history. So as a volume two, I'm not sure as much of the history. I could talk about specific groups that I left out. And of course, there's so many great recipes that we had to leave out, but I'm hoping I think I got the story right. Yeah, I think you did. What do you hope readers will get from this book? Not to sound flip, but it may sound flip, is that God can tell you what to eat, but your God can't tell me what to eat. Mm -hmm. And so... And I think that is a very American idea. And we we want to share. We want to share our churches. We want to share our community. We want to share our food. But the moment it becomes forced and oppressive is the moment we should all step back and reconsider what is our motivation. Exactly. I look at this book as a way to better understand humanity and not only can we better understand how people were thinking then and today, but we can also come around the table and share some food and have better, richer discussions and have a more peaceful world moving forward. I hope so, because if you just even have a dinner party with your neighbors and bring over a potluck, there's a bond that develops. And that is why, again, so many of the groups, mainstream groups, people at the, our local Catholic church down the block is having their spaghetti dinner soon. All are welcome. This notion that we can share meals together and build a community through that, I think is a fantastically wonderful American notion and that we should embrace that a bit more. I agree. 
Well, we've got to close. I want to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN in Columbia, Missouri. But most of all, I want to thank my guest, Miss Christina Ward. She is a food historian, author, and the title of her latest book is Holy Food, How Cults, Communes, and Religious Movements Influenced What We Eat in American History. Christina, thank you for this work. Thank you, Melinda, for having this conversation. I just really am grateful for it.